This is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. Once we're saved, are we always saved? If we lose our assurance that we're saved, do we lose our actual salvation? What affects our sense of assurance? What confuses it? What strengthens it? And how have theological shifts over time altered our perception of salvation? Find out this and more on this episode of Confessional Theology. So, so this whole issue, I give you a little bit more of a history here. I would encourage you to read. It's kind of a fun little history. Um, so, so basically, Augustine spoke of perseverance rather than perfection. He notes that the perseverance by which we persevere in Christ, even to the end, is the gift of God. Thus, on the gift of perseverance. For Augustine, no one lives in this corruptible body, however righteous he may be, without sins of some kind. Ultimately, Augustine grounded the doctrine of perseverance upon the doctrine of predestination, which explains why his treatise on the gift of perseverance is the second book on the treatise on the predestination of the saints. So all of a sudden, I I mean, there's so much I want to say here just to help you appreciate what's happening in front of you, even historically. We've been trying to make this case throughout this course that, that our confessional theology is like it's an organic body of of beliefs you one goes wrong and others will go wrong with it they they there's a there's an impact you know so if i have a i don't know you know in a body metaphor you know if if one part you know gangrene or something if one part goes bad, it's going to impact the rest. I mean, I see that as I get older, my nerves up here. I mean, I've, I really, you know, the great example is I have this thing right here where, where I have to about every three or four days, it seems like, just push the heck out of it. It's a little nerve bundle, I guess. And man, it sends a down my leg and down my arm. And, but that, that crick in my back disappears every time. You know, the one that I can't even lay down at night if it gets too bad. But it starts here. Well, think of that as, as, a, as a confessional theology, it, why it's so important. We live in a time now where, and now I'm getting off the reservation a little bit, but I'm just so tired. You know, it's, it's been such a fight. But we, we live in a time when everyone wants to base, where so many in the world are, are very experiential in the, their approach to Christianity. And they just need the experience. I mean, I, I'm, 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 I can be assured if I get an emotional experience. And in that moment, I feel it. That is so, so, so dangerous. You know, Paul talks about being, you know, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine in this emotional sort of event-focused Christianity. So... This is so impregnant, and do you see how this is true? Look what's happening. So here, uh, here's Augustine. Okay, so goes predestination, so goes perseverance, so goes perseverance, so goes justification or assurance, so goes assurance, so goes per, you know justification, so goes justification, so goes yeah. It just goes on and on. Paul kind of does that in Romans. Remember in chapter eight, where he says those who've been you know 
predestined or justified, I think, or those who are justified or sanctified, you know, it kind of goes through this. But they, they all link together, is my point. Any questions about that rel relatively long roundtable discussion before we get into the actual text of our Westminster? Any thoughts about this? Any? Has this been helpful? Yeah. But I would have to, I would have to, to uh, I'd have to at least inquire more about that, what you mean by that, because, um, yeah, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, if that's what you're kind of referring to. Um, so I would just have to see if they do have assurance, though. And, and if they do, what's the basis of that assurance, right? So in other words, I don't think that I would want you, I do think, as our confession says, that you should hope for and expect a certainty. So there is a way to get there, is my point. Now, it's true that if someone says, Lord, Lord, and I say, well, what do you mean? And they say, well, I'm saved by my works, then I'm going to say, well, do you think you work good enough to satisfy the law? And to be, I would probably quote some Pelagius on them and say, yeah, what about the Scripture? Be holy as the Lord is holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. You know, on and on and on. Um, what would you do about that? And so I could probably, you know, but, but yeah, so I see in that sense, it's back to the doctrine, though. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions? Uh, and maybe you'll get to this. Yeah. The warnings against apostasy, particularly I'm thinking of Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Um, you know, Arminians approach those very differently than the, the Calvinist model would. So what do you think is the best pushback against those warnings? Well, again, you should go back to the Donatist controversy. That's what that was all about. Um, the pure church movement got born. What do you think, historian? Is that, was there historically a, a pure church movement before then? Donatist? No, no, just Donatist. Yeah, that starts it. And that's... Because of the persecution. Yeah, yeah. So you, you really could go back to that. It's a wonderful case study for you to look at. But the gist is this, um, you know, it's that, and that, and many are opposed to, I mean, it's, it's the argument that, that moved the Donatist to the anti-pedo-infant uh, baptism position. They wanted a pure church. And so the, the bad, you know, the anti-pedo position is a pure church subcategory, if you will trying to preserve the church, whereas Augustine would argue and others would argue that no, the wheat and the tares are allowed to, there's a passage in the kingdom that was big, highly debated back in the Donatist controversy. What does this mean? You know, that, that wheat and tares, you're, it's not time to harvest them yet. And, and do, you, do you understand that to be possibly the possibility in, within the church? And so the reformers later are going to make that distinction of the visible and invisible church. And, and we haven't gotten there yet, but, when, but what I don't mean is the organized and the unorganized church. What I don't mean is an abstract platonic church and a concrete, you know, whatever, corporal church. That's not what they meant at all. In fact, I, I, don't, I try not to use those terms anymore. What they meant was the church fallible and the church infallible. 
that is, there is a church as God sees it. That's the infallible church. And there's the church as we see it, and that's a fallible church. Which means that we, that there is, in this particular church, the possibility of those who think they're Christians or not. Or maybe aren't, don't even think they are, I don't know. That somehow got in. Because mistakes can be made. But what Augustine and the other anti-Donatist people would argue is, but you don't, you know, take the sickle out yet in, in terms of the church. You, you do discern, you certainly do fence the table, if you want to call it that, um, which is what we do when we admit you or demit you from church membership. So we try to do it, but we're doing it for the sake of giving you assurance. We want you to have assurance that the aim of membership, at least partly the aim of membership, is is to help you in your journey towards assurance, for you to have the collaborative effect of, of that which was appointed by Christ to bind and loose on earth, that which is bind and loose in heaven. And that collaborative impact of the church in your life is going to help you have that assurance, which is so vital to your Christian experience in life. Back to the circle. See, so I don't know if I answer. So that's, yeah, that's a big issue, you know, about the apostate. And certainly we should, we should say that, you know, you don't want to apostate. You want, you don't want to be a hero, you know, um, but, uh, but we don't then just sort of uh, forget everything we believe doctrinally either about what is saving faith, what is assurance, what is justification, da, 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 da. I mean, it's a great case for reading the Bible as a whole, right? And yep. Just to pluck out yeah. You know, it's, it's difficult, um, I think, when you, when you read like Hebrews 6, you know, and it talks about, you know, how can someone taste the food, yeah. oh, boy. but then fall away, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's difficult, and so it's just what, you know, just trying That's to figure right. out what's the best way to... I mean, we all know that just being and sitting in a church doesn't make one a Christian. What we do know, though, is that saving faith and... The bottom line is we live in an era where I think we, we, I mean, we actually can test faith, though. We have enough scripture to be able to do that. So I want, I don't want to give you a kind of nihilistic answer here and say to your question and say, well, yeah, we really can't. No, we can know with certainty. I want you to know that. I want you to take that home. You should be, you, you have in your mind, I can know for certainty that I'm a Christian. If you don't, you should be seeking for that. And where will we go? We'll go to the promises of scripture. And we'll look at that. We'll do our theology again. And we'll make sure. But, but clearly, the Donatist controversy, voila, what we're seeing here with Augustine, is to, is to settle the deal in the sense that, no, um, because you apostated, because you were weak, doesn't necessarily annul or, or your justification. we got to go back to the table and talk. What is your confidence? If your confidence is in your 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 works of standing firm in the midst of persecution, then you don't have assurance. If your confidence is in, I want it, I believe it, I receive it, you know, what we call saving faith, which if you remember, what is that? It's assenting, re receiving, and resting. All right, let's get into some, some text here. Some of the biblical passages uh, are Philippians 1.6. Paul, you don't know that one. Philippians 1 6. confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus there. Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.1, Romans 5, we won't read them all now. Um, uh, 8.16 is that, is that list of those who were predestined or this or this or this or this. Um, we talked last week about suffering and the way this suffering produces endurance as perseverance. And perseverance results in this assurance. We looked at that last week. Um, so let's read some passages. Who would like to read Westminster there, 17? Accepted in his beloved, effectively called, and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Okay, two. Somebody? Now, let's stop there for a minute, and I want to make sure we come back, because this is one of my favorite um, chapters in this confession, if you will. We'll see some. Section 1, what does it say? The assembly affirms in very full language that is stated briefly in Philippians 1.6, which we've just heard it. What did the work, when did the work begin? What are some ways that that will be completed? Is this the same as once saved, always saved? Is it? So basically, is number one basically saying once saved, you're always saved? Huh? Yep, it kind of does. Now, does anybody want to give a caveat to that? Good. If you're truly saved, then you're always saved. One, doesn't God, God doesn't renege. Now, what's... Two, it's not based on us anyway. Those are the first two. One and two. One, it's, it starts with God. It ends with God. Two, um, it doesn't depend on us, our free will, and all these other things that we do. It depends on the immutable decree of God's election. Unchangeable election, remember? So, uh, number one and two makes the case. Now, can you anticipate an argument? Judas, good question. Was he saved? No. How do you know? Well, his behavior suggests that he was not. Uh oh. Uh oh. Behavior came up. Well, but, but not just in his betrayal of Jesus, which is what the others also did to some extent. Well, really, if, if, if Judas is not saved, is it, just that, is it just his behavior that would give you that conclusion? Yeah, he didn't repent. Okay, so, and what do you mean by that, repent? Confess the sins and ask forgiveness or whatever. Um, think about what's, what's happening here, because don't confuse perseverance with assurance. There are two separate chapters, two separate doctrines, very different. Can you lose your assurance of salvation, do you think? Yes, even though you're a Christian. Absolutely, you can. But 
can you lose your salvation? No. But how would we know then if we are truly saved? We will persevere in faith alone. So look at what happens here. This is one of the most beautiful statements I've ever read for my soul. I'm about to read it. Okay, you have a question first. Oh, you're just trying to get the blood going out. Blood going out of your leg. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Someone read verse, I mean, section three. Preservation. Fall into a grievous sin and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their grace and comfort, have their hearts hardened and their consciousness wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Now, I want you just to think about that section for a minute. I mean, this was written by those, you know, those old wooden, stodgy, old school Puritan types. And they say about a Christian, after saying that you can't lose your salvation, after saying it's, it's not according to your immutable, blah, 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 a Christian can look like this? I mean prevalency of corruption remaining in us such as we stop attending church, the means of grace. We could fall into, you know, cute sins, but they got to stay cute. You know, the little sins, pink and blue. No, we can fall into grievous, grievous sins. And for a time continue there, whereby they incur God's displeasure and dis grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize other people, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. David must be the best example of the scriptures. Yeah, that's right. You know, I've always said that, that the church, you know, we, we have a lot of grace for unbelievers. But the second you become a believer and become a member of a church, the tendency is to say, oh, no, you don't get grace anymore. We start judging you by your works. That's the problem with the Donatist movement, that idea. You know, that, isn't that just wicked when you stop to think about it? I mean, what a bait and switch that we give them where, and of course this comes into the revival methodology of reviving faith and, and all of that, which means you need to go and what? You need to, uh, my wife, bless her heart, must have walked that aisle five or six times growing up in her Baptist church. Anybody do that? Anybody else do the, the famous, you know, Walk the aisle, whatever you call it. The altar call. The altar call. Yeah. I mean, this is an amazing statement by these old Puritans. <laughs> that, that those who are saved will know them basically because at the end of the day, um, they will return to faith eventually. 
But during that season when they're not, at that season where they're not, they will not experience the grace of their salvation, meaning our assurance. So look what's going to happen next in chapter 18. In some ways, it, it hopefully will, and that's what, I mean, think about it, you're excommunicate, when I excommunicate, when, when, when I, the church, when we, the church, excommunicate someone, you have been studying that, I know, but, but what's the purpose of that? The number one purpose, I don't know if I could rank them, number one, you know, to, to preserve the glory of God, to preserve the purity of the church, but, but the third, and I don't know if they're in the orders, is to reclaim the sinner. You're doing it. As a declaration that based on what is happening in your life right now, you can't have assurance. We're not doing it with the, that, that that somehow affects your assurance or affects your, your, uh, your, your you know, salvation. In other words, when we say binding and loosing on earth, that which is in heaven, what we don't mean is that the church saves you or doesn't save you and God just, you, you make the judgment and I will back you up. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, based on God and His Word, we administer, we execute the covenant that is God's covenant. We don't have the right to write the covenant, but we're executing the covenant in the life of a believer as a means of grace. So why do you want to be a member of a church? You want to be a member of a church in order to, for, it's, it's, the, it's the source, it's the place where God executes His salvation in our lives, the means of grace they call it here. And that means of grace is you come for membership and say, I want to know if I'm a Christian. And we have an examination. And the church either concurs or doesn't concur that you're a Christian. And if you were to fall into this moment of, of section three here, while having this assurance, it's not this, in, the infallible insurance doth not so belong the essence of faith. Now notice what they're saying there. That's really significant. Number three, just having faith doesn't, and this gets to your question, doesn't mean, therefore, that the experience of that faith is infallible. There can be times when you are wayward, and during those seasons where you're not persevering in faith, attending to the means of grace, attending to the promises of God, etc., you will be struggling with your assurance. And the church might even help you struggle with your assurance by excommunicating you <laughs> if it needs to, to try to help you face the reality that, that you know, you need to put yourself in, back into the means of grace and repent and believe. What do y'all think? So look at this uh, number one. Somebody read that one. So what did you see there? Any questions? Come down to the study guide here. Well, the, the first caveat there is saying, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false mm -hmm. hopes, how do you then know you're not 
What do you think? Well, you, like, going back to the saving faith. That, um, there it is. Yeah, but the thing is, how do you know, like, the devil recognizes that? Well, well, no, but we go back to the promises of, of God's Word. We go back to the promises. We go back to those doctrines and say, well, what is the Scripture teach about the nature of saving faith? And what, you know, so, so that's what you do. That's why doctrine's so important. Because you're going to have to go back and test your faith. That's what you know, Paul said. Test your faith. Examine yourself. Well, how am I going to do that? I'm going to take the Word of God. And I'm going to read the Word of God with the church of 2,000 years so I don't get screwed with my own little nuanced, weird interpretation. And with the church, I'm going to read the Scripture, which is what we're doing right now by use of a confession. And we're going to try to resolve the question, what is the basis of my assurance? That's what we would do. Exactly. But people can have their weird, nuanced interpretation. Yeah, they can. And be fully assured they can. And they could be wrong. So, you know what? I hate to say it. Go to a gospel-believing church and do it with them. I mean, I mean, this, things that you think are very superfluous or, or very, you know, just beside the point of the gospel. Man, a church is essential here to read the Scripture with the, with the body of Christ and and, and to go to the, you know, have this, it's such a gift that you are getting what you're getting right now. That you're getting this, that, that we are sitting here thinking through, we've been quoting scriptures, bringing scriptures into this, but we're doing it with our church for 2,000 years. We're talking about the Donatus controversy. and assurance, we're going to start talking about the halfway covenant and things that were wrestled with here in the States. And all kinds of things that were happening to try to deal with, what, well, what is the basis of assurance really? And believe me, the, they, they suffered it. Um, I think the Puritans, particularly in the, in, the, in the American context, had some pretty big struggles with the doctrine of assurance, quite frankly. Began to look for these spiritual, these, these, these uh, kind of spiritual, well, I'll, I'll read some, you'll see. Let me, let me, I'll just kind of hate to even show it to you, but, but it's there. So we've talked about, you know, Donatus and Augustine and Pelagius. Now we're going to stay, we're going to go into this whole idea of, of um, you know, uh, the Puritans here in America, of course, I'm thinking of Edwards, people like that. Look at this. One school emphasized human works as playing a significant role, both in preparation for and assurance of salvation. Now, um, Thomas Shepard being an example. But I look for Christ and wait for him and desire him, and all that are wise think well of me. You may do all this, and yet you may be found foolish for all this. Evangelical work, which is accompanied with salvation in some, and may be hypocritical in thee, and therefore take heed, you do not take shows for substance. Sending a person. Now, why would someone say that to you? Why don't you come into my study and I say, well, I don't know, maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you shouldn't take such confidence in your your little profession of faith that you made uh, back then. Maybe you, just because you come to church and do the communion, maybe that's not, how would you know? Now, what, do you, what, is, what is the context to, in a guy like Thomas Shepard? Anybody know? I mean, what would it be like? Imagine you're living in New Haven, as you could have, and now all civil laws are tied to your relationship to the church and salvation. Yeah. If you were a nominal Christian, you could take care of your family. I mean, if that's not a temptation to hypocrisy, I don't know what is. I mean, that's about the best temptation. I mean, I'll tell you what, Pat, you know, Billy Bob, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to have this system set up because they had this, con, this confusion of covenant theology related to Israel and, and America and all this other stuff. And so that was one of the things that the Puritans brought over here that, I'm, that, that we're glad we, we've repented of. But, but so imagine this, just imagine this idea that there's a geopolitical relationship between the kingdom of God and, the, and America. And therefore, you are in good, you, you are right with America, the state, insofar as you're right with the church. I, I can't think of a worse scenario for me as a pastor. Oh, they'll be coming to church. I guess if I'm, if I'm, if I'm getting my, my kudos by how many people walking in the door, that'd be a great thing. Because they're all walking in the door. <laughs> you know, and I got power of the sword sitting right in my mouth along with the session, let's say. I can excommunicate you, which means you just lost your property. Now, I, I don't think it's quite that. I, I won't work through all that. But you see the point. So if you're one of those kind of pastors, what do you think you're going to be doing on, certain, uh, on Sunday morning? Are they there because they love their land <laughs> and their kids for that matter? <laughs> or are they there because they've truly experienced evangelical grace? That converting grace of salvation through faith alone, yeah. Right, so that might be one thing, but there's also, I suppose, their thing on their minds of like antinomianism, basically, kind of, yeah, I've got faith and literally nothing else matters now, which obviously you can point okay. to scripture right. to like diffuse, but like there is that, the whole kind of, how do we bring James 2 into this? Okay, if James 2 isn't the basis for your assurance or for your salvation, that you can't also ignore the fact that. That's exactly right. Um, so so it's enough that I am struggling with my sin yeah. versus I am perfected. Yeah. But if I cease to struggle with my sin, yeah. now we're starting to open up the can of worms of is there true repentance? Would you dare go further? Yeah, you, I'm not sure if this is the, the question, but clearly I'm not going to judge your salvation by your orthodoxy. I will judge your salvation based on you demonstrating saving faith. Now, what does it take to have saving faith? At least some degree of orthodoxy. So, could you be saved and not believe in hell? No? Yes? Okay. Now, some would say no. That's, that's, you're a heretic. And so we got to be careful to apply doctrine after the principle of that doctrine. Let me say that again. You apply doctrine after the principle of that doctrine. There are some doctrines that, that are related to your doctrine, uh, your, your, what, what is required to have saving faith. I mean, do you need to have a doctrine that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is both God and man and such as that he can um, represent you and all? You, you can go through this whole thing. How far, do you have, how far does your Christology have to go before you can say, I can assent to the truth of the gospel and, and receive it? So, yeah, you do have to have some doctrine that's orthodox. You have to believe there's a God, for instance. And it's not an it, it's a person. So if you come in here and say, I believe in, in the Spirit, 
God the Spirit? Yeah, but do you believe that God is a person? No. Well, I don't think he can be saved now. I don't think a Hindu or a Buddhist can be saved out of their doctrine of God. Okay, and I could go on. There's a God. Do you believe that you're accountable to that God? You probably have to have to know that. At some level, you're going to have to understand that I was made in to image him, which if you've been hearing my sermons recently, you know that means to, to basically glorify him as in a priestly vocation. And I failed that. I failed my covenant, my creation covenant. I failed my, my purpose for existence. I deserve to die. God would be justified because I failed my purpose of existence. That's one way to put it. And God revealed himself to Adam and through the scriptures, I know enough to know that he's a, he's a gracious God. Out of his mere good pleasure, he, he, he provided a means through which I could be justified. You might, need to know, you might not need to know the word justified, but you would have enough of the concepts to be able to know that God took care of the problem through Jesus Christ. And I'm putting my faith and hope in the promise of God that that's so. See what I mean? So, so there's a kind of thing there that, that um, you know, what happened, especially in this American context with this so, sort of false understanding of covenant theology was some pretty horrible stuff in terms of, of the struggle to find assurance. I mean, you know, Edward struggled with it greatly during the, especially his youth. Horrible struggle. Some say he was, you know, would look at it and say he was struggling with depression, but we don't know for sure, but he certainly was suffering with spiritual depression in some of his writings, where he's just basically just struggling to know, does God love me? But it's in a context where you're trying to distinguish nominalism from an authentic faith. And so when you read those Puritans, read them a little more graciously, I guess. Yeah, you know, the, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, although it really is a very gracious sermon if you go and actually read it. Um, but the image is a pretty powerful image. You know, the spider hanging over fire, and there you are, <laughs> retching like a spider. You know, and yeah, I think I would say, I would preach some sermons like that in a church of nominal, where you had to be there, trying to help people get come to terms with the reality of judgment and that it's a serious, it's not enough that you have benefits on this earth by going to church. You got other things to worry about here to help you waken to your sin. Right. Well, you'd have to go through all that, yeah. So, another school of thought was John Cotton. See that bullet down there? Read that uh, italic somewhere. He placed an emphasis on the immediacy of God's love. And while he affirmed the sanctification was a necessary evidence of justification, so we won't go that far. Well, well we can say sanctification is a necessary evidence of justification, but what we can't do is what? In other words, works is ne faith is never alone. But we can't now take the, the very huge step of going, yes, there ought to be sanctification happening in your life. But I can't measure it 
in one specific concrete versus another and how much and all of that. And it would be enough to say, do you see God working in your life? Can you think of a time where God has convicted you of your sin and, and, and enabled you to confess that sin and ask his forgiveness? See, there's sanctification, and, and are you moving, are you, you know, what have you, and God has been giving me the grace to get up and go to church every day, week. Good, that's sanctification. You know, he's, he's taken some, he's helped me with some of my thoughts. Yes, that's sanctification. But I'm not, me, I'm not saying you're, that, that, that a particular sanctifying act is what I'm examining. I'm just looking for the evidence that God is in the world, in your life, working grace of sanctification in your life and bringing you back again and again to repentance and faith, right? Hey, Cliff. Um, any questions about that? So, so assurance is just huge, and there's been a, I think it's one of the most difficult issues that faces the church even to this day, and I hope we're getting clear. Perseverance is one thing. But even while you, even you're one of those who God will persevere, you can suffer assurance in those seasons wherein you're basically wayward. But it's not because your Christianity has been, it's not because your salvation has been annulled. It's because you don't experience the grace of that salvation relative to your assurance when you're in your sin. Unconfessed sin, I should add, very importantly. So it's so important that you come back every Sunday and every night and every day and you do what? You repent in faith. Repentance in faith. Repentance in faith. Persevering. And as long as you're persevering in that, that's, you know, that's all that's required, you know, if you will. Faith. That's not a work. It's wanting it and believe we talked about that. Got it? So with that in mind, um, let's keep going here. Let's see here. What are some others? We're almost done. So one, what is the biblical evidence of faith that is never alone? And there's some of those passages. Do I need to read some of those? What then is the biblical evidence against examining any specific performance of works as a basis for assurance? There's some other passages. You want to talk more about that? Do you see those two questions though and how, what I've been uh, illustrating through the Puritans? It's one thing to say, yes, it's true to the James point. True and saving faith is never alone. I mean, one of the best passages that for I think is Romans six, where he talks about you entered into his baptism, and you know it, 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 he's he's going to say, you know, yes, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But then he goes to the context, but but you don't understand the same supernatural regenerative work, life giving work of God's grace that brought you to faith is the same work, it's the same Spirit, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, that is now at work in your life, giving you a new life. So you can say, again, that faith is never alone. You can say that, that sanctification necessarily comes with saving faith, but you can't say by examining any specific performance of works as a basis for your assurance. I want to make sure this is clear. You'll never struggle with this again in your life, right? Go for it. Is that a question? Oh, yeah. I just, I think, could you help clear this up more? Because logically speaking, if saving faith never comes alone and um, must accompany, it does accompany sanctification, and sanctification only works through 
Practically speaking, you could look at one if you said that is always a product of the other, like to measure savings. No, you can't. Okay, we, we shouldn't do that. Well, hold, say that again. Maybe I misunderstood you. Saving faith will result in sanctification. Um, right. And um, it's like with the James 2 passage right. that we're talking about, talks about the kind of emptiness of a faith where you are like, just denying that works. And he's talking about a hypocrite there. He's talking about the guy that looks in a mirror yeah. and, and then walks away and he's not the same person. You know, and so yeah. he's talking about what might we call nominal Christianity. But is it fair to say then, if, if, what, what do you say to someone who's just saying, yeah, I've got saving faith and, and works as a relevant? You can point to so many passages of scripture where that's, like, how, how do we, like, really emphasize the importance of sanctification um, when, like, in this context, it's so that it is so integral to... Like, You're saying where in scripture can we find that? I'm just saying, like, it, I, I just feel like the... We haven't gotten to sanctification yet, so maybe we need to wait. Yeah. We will, but let me see if this will help you. Um, I think it's, let me just see it here. So six, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Now, what is he just did? He's just taken one kind of death to sin and then turned to another aspect of the death of sin, which is the inward and outward. We, we died to sin in Christ, justification. But then how would the same spirit, you're going to see him say, how does the same spirit that brought you to the death of sin justif in justification cease to work in your life to actually bring about the salvation from your sins? So, so think about it. In Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And you're thinking justification. We did this last week. Maybe. But you shouldn't. Because he's talking about sanctification. Salvation includes sanctification. So Paul's going to make this point. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now what's he talking about there? Justification. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what is he saying? You are already being resurrected right now. A new person. Then he goes on, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I.e., it, 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 it did not condemn us now. So that we could, would no longer be enslaved to sin. So his logic is basically this. Don't you understand? He's saying <laughs> um, the same spirit that regenerated you and such as to give you saving faith is the same spirit that, must, that continues to regenerate you to give you sanctifying faith. Saving faith, sanctifying faith. And one comes always with the other. And yet he'll also then make it clear that we're saved by grace through faith alone, not by your works, lest any man can boast. And it's been the sloppiness of theology that doesn't get those things cleaned up. It's clear if we're just not sloppy. And this is why I, I, I'm begging you to start using theological terms. They aren't just arbitrary. To use theological terms, when we were, say the word salvation, notice there's not even a chapter in our whole confession 
called, this is a chapter on, on the salvation of man or something. Why? Why doesn't the confession have a, that's pretty kind of an absent thing, isn't it? That there's no chapter on salvation in our whole confession of faith? Good job. Exactly. There's not one chapter that's not about salvation. So expand your understanding of salvation. This once saved, always saved. Well, what do you mean? That's when you have to ask the questions. What do you mean saved? Are you talking about election saved, effectual calling saved, justification saved, saving faith saved, you know, sanctification saved, perseverance saved, assurance saved? All of those are aspects of my salvation. And so this is so important. And so um, let's go back here. Get rid of this little. Um, Let's see, what else can we hit on here? Because I do need to go here. Um, can a person lose assurance? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Can they lose their salvation? No. If you mean by salvation, justification, no. Can you lose your, I don't know, assurance? Yes. Because that's part of our salvation. So remember, that's that that can you lose your salvation? Do you see why that oh, I cringe every time I hear it? I just we need to we need to be clear. Justification is what you're most people are talking about when they say that. They're talking about justification. Yeah. I think we're getting tricky with this use of the word saved. That's what I'm saying we are. Well, but but it's not all a process. Scripture, you all uses that in the past tense, the present tense, and the future. Yes, but I do not want you to say justification is a process. I didn't say that. Okay, that's my point. That's why you got to be clear. You were saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. Yeah, we can say that. That's true. But every time I say it. No, 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 Bill. I'm trying to get you to become a theologian. You got to you got to think using language that will clarify this stuff. You're not a you're not a two year old theologian anymore, bro. You're not. I know you're not. You're you, because because you're going to use this loose language like that. And that, I'm saying the world will use it. I'm having fun with you a little bit. But but the world will use it. You now are being trained not to use it. For you to say, okay, salvation, you understand now to be a 33 article of faith event, <laughs> if you want to put it in that language. And so you're, we're talking to Billy Bob over here, yeah, or do you believe you're once saved and always saved? And I'll go, 33 articles just came into my head. And I'm going to sit down and talk with old Billy Bob and say, Billy Bob, let's talk about what you mean by salvation. I want to talk to my son, David. Well, <laughs> he doesn't know yeah. all these yeah. But this is so important, guys. Well, and that's so important. Yeah, you just reminded me of it. You got kids and. I see some folks in here that have kids or will have kids. Others who've already had kids and they're gone. <laughs> well, and so my point to you that have kids and they're not gone. I, I hope if nothing else has happened in this, this discussion about we've kind of had a discussion about the value of, I guess, confessional theology, but I hope these conversations happen with your kids. 
I mean, every conversation we've been having today ought to be having with your kids somewhere, sometime. And certainly I would encourage you to use the catechism process that we try to encourage. Um, you should really use this. This is not just getting your kids to have dogma. Let's know what the, your purpose is not to teach the kids what the church believes. As if, if you don't believe you're not good with the church. Your purpose is to train your children in, in the, the, the faith, what, you know, the doctrines of the faith that they might experience the graces of that, of those doctrines. Your purpose is to help them so that they don't get washed to and fro. And I look back and I, I mean, I was very uh, intentional about catechizing my kids, but I so could do it better now as I've reflected on how I could have done it. You know, I wish that it had much more of a, uh, I needed to do it yet again. I mean, I kind of did. I, I taught the theology camp, you know, for the junior, senior, the senior highs where we got to do it. That's what I did with them. This whole kind of, a, you know, where I play with them. Uh, but we just got, you're going to have to do it every phase of their life. Every phase. You're going to have to do it. I'm still doing my kids in a different, totally different way. Sit down. I want to catechize you today, Stephen, you know, 31 years old. Doubt that's going to work. But it's amazing how, you know, you can have the conversations. And I mean, recently we had one about a year ago where Stephen and Nathan and I were up and everybody going to bed. And we're in the kitchen and all of a sudden, just like the floodwaters opened up, and I think Nathan started with a question about something that happened in his church, and it was like four hours later, four in the morning, man, and we were sitting around just getting on it. And then, and they, and then afterwards they said, God, I had no idea that, I mean, it was kind of a, you knew all this stuff, and, 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 I, was, and I know I'm your dad. It, it kind of broke my heart. You know, it's like, I'm in, I've been in your life all this time, and they... They hadn't really, I hadn't really been able to, uh, not, I mean, I, I'm looking at this against me, not them. In other words, why didn't you know this? Me. <laughs> you know, and now you know it. And you, and you. So, anyway, I think that's, any, any last questions? What time is it? What does that say? 18 Okay. We have a little more time. Let's see, what's another... We all think. You already call it a day? Any questions? Thoughts? The church is infallible. Do you think at all, especially one of the things I've noticed has been... The church is infallible? As, as in, like, the, the, like the, the church, uh, as in that we're in now, won't get everything perfectly right, even if um, the church is Christ. We're fallible. Fa sorry, fallible. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that is what I meant, actually. Yeah. Um, the church is fallible. Um, is there... Just about the method of going through catechisms. Is there a danger that if we treat these documents as, as, as perfect documents, that we become, we're, we're defending 16th century, 17th century reformers? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, there's always a danger of that. Absolutely. Yeah. You should never teach it like that. Yeah. Um, you have, you, you're, you're using catechism as a means of interpreting scripture. That's all you're doing. You're, but but it always and the beautiful thing is go back to the catechism if you remember section chapter one what does chapter one say we're supposed to do in our catechism with respect to all issues and controversies of faith it, I mean the first article of faith says don't come to us <laughs> go to the scripture we're here to help you go to the scripture we're here um, as there's two things about a catechism and, and a true catechism or a confession of faith is a better word for it a, a true confession of faith 
One is it is it is uh, it's not it's not Calvin could not do what I would call a true confession of faith. The church can do it, but not an, a man. Preston can't write. It's got to be adopted. It's got to go through a process where where those who will be ordained and those who will be in church members. I mean, I, I can't I, I'm going back to my first you know, our first seminar here. But but just imagine a, it's a living document. It's being reviewed and confirmed every single solitary time a person is ordained to the office of elder or an office of teaching elder or pastor to even as a church member to some degree. You're going back and you're saying, do I believe this? Faith, confession of faith. That's what it is. It's a document. It's like a, a history document. It, it's, it's like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Precedential, but, but it's this living Every generation passing down to the next generation, what it concludes is what the scriptures principally teach about these major issues of our faith. Passing down from one to another. But every generation has to rediscover it. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And, and you see the demise of the church this way historically, where one generation has to rediscover it. And then the next generation doesn't have to rediscover it. They're taught it as kind of a more of a nominal. And the third generation is way off the, the reservation, which is, I think, where we are right now in America, for the most part. You, you have, I mean, my parents were Christians. And my parents, you know, up until I was around, I don't know, about five years old, I forgot. They stopped going to church then. But, but I'll, I'll even say it better. My grandparents where I would say at the most a second generation uh, sort of in that process. They, they were taught and dutifully they believed and they went to church every week of their life. My, both sets of my grandparents. But I don't know that they had internalized it, discovered it through the study of scripture to the degree that they could then transfer it to their children. So now their children had it as it, it was now my parent, grandparents, I'm being a little hypothetical. Grandparents, under, they knew their doctrines, but they had not discovered it in Scripture. But the next parents knew what the doctrines are and were dutifully, would, well, they wouldn't have known what they are, but they thought they knew what they are insofar as they were familiar with it. And then the next generation, me, wakes up in a crisis going, I don't know what the heck I believe at all. And when I ask my parents, they, they don't really know what to tell me. I mean, my mother did probably one of the first people that, that shared faith. I mean, I remember saying one day coming out of a church service when I was in, I think I went to one of these VBSs and, you know, had my contact and how do, how do you become a Christian? And she dutifully said, well, you pray to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> She hadn't gone to church since that day, but, but that's what she knew to say. So that's sort of an interesting thing here. So I don't know how that gets back to your question. I kind of got off a little bit, didn't I? But. But I can't, and, and, and why did they do that? 
why were they why did they take it so seriously um, mm, well, I know what I'd say I'm not trying it's not your question but I think I think they they understood God was working in history yeah. and would not that God's word would go forward and mm-hmm. if some people had tripped up they were keen on the fact that God had been faithful so they were fine yeah God is not dead. God is alive in history, and he's working in every generation. And so you can do it with a view of redemptive history, and they had a high sense of we're in a history of redemption, which means that it's a living faith, and we're therefore, you know, have, every generation has to do it. Always reforming came out of the Reformation, simple referendum. But also, I would I, a doctrinal reason why you do it is you'd say, well, I believe that the, in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in this church that is at all places of all times visible. And that church is described in Scripture as the pillar and bulwark of the truth. That's, that's the guardian of the truth. So my Bible tells me how to read the Bible. I read it with the church. And when I say with the church, I didn't say with Preston Graham. I'm not here, I'm not here uh, presenting to you Preston Graham's systematic theology. And see, so systematic theology is not confessional theology, even if confessional theology can be put together systematically. Now, that might blow your brain. But the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, unless Calvin's Institutes is a constitutional record for a particular church, it's not a confession of faith. So it's great, it's brilliant, (laughs) but we're not studying Calvin's Institutes. We're studying a true living document right now. It's alive. It's still being worked on and amended and thought about, etc. And yeah, sometimes they get amended and revised in ways we go, whoop, you just went off the reservation. And we've got to think about that. And how would we come to that conclusion? We would read it with our fathers and mothers. And say, well, hold it, how come people who, you know, 15 other language groups in 15 different eras, from Africa to the Middle East, to ancient Middle East, to Brazil, whatever, all these people read the Bible and they come to the same conclusion about X, and then here's this little strand of people who now no longer believe like. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my bet on, you know, 1,500 years of history versus the last 200 in this one particular area. See, that's what saves you. Thanks for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked the show, please consider a five-star rating. Share it with your friends or write to us. For this episode's show notes, visit our website. Until next time, this is CPC Podcast.